Good morning. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 this morning, if you'd like to follow along with me as I read. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all of the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you have learned from it, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Eleven years ago, Beckett Cook was a gay man living in Hollywood who had enjoyed great success as a set designer for in the fashion industry, he worked with stars and supermodels from Natalie Portman to Claudia Schiffer and uh, traveling the world to design photo shoots for magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. And he attended award shows and parties in the homes of uh, Paris Hilton and Prince and uh, spent summers swimming in the uh, swimming pool of Drew Barrymore. And, uh, but a decade later... Beckett Cook has moved on from that life, and he doesn't miss it. And uh, what, uh, what was it that changed for him? Well, he says he met Jesus. He says, on a momentous day in September of 2009, while drinking coffee with a friend, Cook started talking with a group of young people sitting at a nearby table with their hard copy Bibles open in front of them, and they invited him to their church. He says that he'd already been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life, searching for it in all sorts of ways, but he knew God was never an option because he was gay. It was off the table, <clears throat> he says. He says he wasn't confused about what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. He knew it was clear, but he was still searching for meaning. He says, when he came to this coffee shop and saw that group of young people with their Bibles open, he started asking them questions. They explained the gospel to him and what they believed. He asked what their church believed about homosexuality, and they explained that they believed that it is a sin. He appreciated their honesty and that they, they didn't beat around the bush. Well, he took them up on their invitation and visited their church the next Sunday where he heard the gospel and gave his life to Jesus. He never looked back. <clears throat> he traded his gay identity for a new identity in Christ. And in the years since, he has completed a degree at Talbot School of Theology 
and has written a memoir of his conversion entitled A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. This is the power of the gospel. It's the power to save us and reconcile us to God and give us eternal life, and it is the power to change our lives now. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sin, and it's about the power of sin being broken in our lives. It is through hearing and receiving the gospel that we become a child of God and together the people of God. And it is through the people of God, it is through the gospel that as the people of God, we are changed to be the people that God desires us to be. For us, it's all about the gospel. It's the good news of all that God has done for us, is doing in us, and will yet do for us in Christ. From conversion to sanctification to glorification, it's all about the gospel. We are a people of the gospel. And as Paul begins his letter to the Colossians, he begins by giving thanks for the work of the gospel in their lives. And so today I've entitled our passage, A People of the Gospel. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. And we want to look at the gospel today and the transforming power of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm just wondering how many people completed the assignment that you were given last week to read through the book of Colossians. I see some heads nodding up and down. That's very good. Appreciate that. And uh, But let's remind ourselves of what we looked at last week by way of introduction. The church at Colossae, remember it's in Asia Minor, uh, what we call, uh, what is Turkey today. And it had been started during the two years that Paul had ministered at Ephesus. Ephesus is on the coast. Colossae is about 120 miles west of that inland. And uh, during Paul's time at Ephesus, when he was teaching for two years, we're told, in the school of Tyrannus, he, he trained and sent out evangelists to preach in that area, one of which was Epaphras, who preached the gospel and started the church in Colossae. Well, Paul is now in prison, and he receives word that false teaching is beginning to make inroads into the church at Colossae. And although Paul had never been to the church himself, he nonetheless has great affection and concern for them. And so he writes this letter from prison to correct, to address and correct the errors of this false teaching in Colossae and to refocus their attention and their affections on the gospel and the preeminence of Christ in their lives. So, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to go through this passage kind of briefly, verses 3 through 8, so that you understand the passage, you understand what Paul's message is here. But then I want to go back and look more closely at what Paul says in the passage 
about the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel. Because really, that's what the passage is all about. Paul's thanking them, thanking God for their reception of the gospel and how it had been working in their lives. So in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul is giving thanks for their reception of the gospel and the evidence of the transforming work of the gospel in their lives. That's basically a summary of verses 3 through 8. Let's start out. Verse 3. We give thanks to God. Paul most often begins his letter with uh, a word of uh, thanksgiving. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a statement, a clear statement on the divine sonship of Jesus. The Father, God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clear statement about the divine sonship, the deity of Jesus. And therefore, his preeminence as Paul describes him, describes him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm praying always for you. And the idea is that Paul gives thanks when he prays. And the idea, again, is that whenever he prays, they are on his mind and on his heart. They are part of those for whom he prays. Next week in verses 9 through 12, we'll look at more specifically what he actually, how he actually prays for them. But we see here, when he says, praying always for you, we see here how much Paul believed that prayer could make a difference in their lives. Otherwise, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be doing it. But he really believed that his prayers could make a difference in their lives. We need to believe that as we pray for one another as well. We don't always see results, but we need to believe that prayer really can make a difference in people's lives. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, this is the reason Paul is thanking God. They now believe in Jesus, the, the, the Jewish Messiah, Christos. They believe in him as their Savior and Lord. And Paul is ecstatic. I thank God that you believe in Jesus. I think I'm just going to leave this on the floor. If I get thirsty, I'll bend down and get it <laughs> rather than keep having to pick it up. All right. And he says, and the love which you have for all the saints. Paul is also thankful, not just for their faith, but for the love that they show to all the believers. And he sees this as the evidence of their faith and their growth in the Christian life. And he is ecstatic. All right, we continue, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Paul gives thanks also because of the certain hope that they have in heaven. What Paul has under, what, excuse me, what God has undertaken to do for us is not limited to just this life. In fact, this life, what God does for us here, is just a small portion of all that he will ultimately do for us. This hope. <clears throat> 
of which Paul speaks here, this hope laid up in heaven, this hope is the future dimension of the gospel. We are saved now, but always keeping our eyes on eternity. And the idea of being laid up in heaven means the promises about the future, which God has made to us, are secure in heaven, and they are awaiting us. Of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. They had heard of this certain hope of eternity in the preaching of the gospel, which again tells us that the message of the gospel is not just about what Jesus can do for us now, but it's about our relationship with God for eternity. Verse 6, which has come to you, he's talking about the message of the gospel. The gospel has come to you just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This is the power of the gospel. Wherever it is proclaimed, it bears fruit. Even it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is commending them here for their testimony. The gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing in their lives as they understood the grace of God in Christ. It has changed their lives. Verse 7, just as you heard it from Epaphras, Epaphras had been sent out by Paul from Ephesus and proclaimed the gospel to them. And this is Paul's commendation of Epaphras to the Colossian Christians, he goes on to say, you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. This suggests that Epaphras may have been coming under attack by the false teachers at Colossae, and Paul is commending him here as a faithful servant of Christ. You need to listen to Epaphras. He's a faithful servant of Christ. Verse 8, And he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. It was Epaphras who had brought, brought the report to Paul of the work of the gospel in their lives. So, that's our passage. Once again, Paul is giving thanks for their reception of the gospel and the evidence of the transforming work of the gospel in their lives. Now, I want to look more specifically at what he says in this passage about first the gospel and then what he says about the transforming power, transforming work of the gospel. So let's look at what he says about the gospel. Paul is thanking God because he has heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This refers to, Paul is talking about here, their reception of the gospel, your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, (laughs) I'm sure that most of us here know that the message of the gospel is received by faith. But we need to be very clear about what faith is. First, there must be the content of the gospel message in order for there to be faith. There must be the content of the gospel message. And the content of the gospel 
is not simply any random or vague message about God or Jesus. The gospel is not simply, well, God loves you. Or Jesus wants to help you to, to succeed or to, to make you a winner or, or a champion. Or Jesus is with you. You know, some of these warm, fuzzy, sentimentality feelings about Jesus. That's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth to provide reconciliation with God. Through his death on the cross, he endured the the penalty of the justice of God for our sins. And because of that, our sins can be forgiven. Our relationship with God is restored. And we are given eternal life. This is the content of of the gospel. Anything less than that is not the gospel. This is what must be believed. And to believe it is not simply a it's not simply a casual acknowledgement. It's not well yeah, that's probably true. Why not? I mean, it sounds pretty good to me. How can I go wrong? Yeah, you know. Why not? Sounds good. Okay? That's not faith in the gospel. Faith means to truly believe it. Not casually, as if like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, I guess so. No, that's not faith. Faith means to truly believe it. Sincerely genuinely believe it. It means to affirm with the conviction, yes, this is what I believe. It means to believe it with the conviction that your eternal destiny is at stake. I believe in Jesus for my only hope of eternal life. And we need to clarify that it is just or only through faith alone, this faith alone, that saves us. It is not believe and whatever you might put in that blank. It is just believe it's not believe and. It's not believe in, you know, be baptized or join the church or change your life or commit, surrender, whatever we might add. It is belief. Faith alone. Sincere, earnest faith. This is what I believe. That's saving faith. That's the reception of the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, I give thanks to God for your faith in Christ Jesus. All right, the gospel also involves hope. Paul speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is the fulfillment of the gospel. 
This is also part of the content of the gospel, the future dimension of the gospel. The word hope, we have, we, we've said this many times, but it's worth clarifying again. The word hope does not mean or imply simply wishful thinking as we customarily use the word today. Boy, I hope this is going to work out. I, I really hope it's gonna, things are going to get better, you know, how we use that word. Nothing wrong with using it that way, but that's not how it's used in Scripture here. <clears throat> it refers to certainty about the future, certainty in the future, that for which we long and that to which we look forward. I want to try to illustrate it this way. <clears throat> I have a few of my grandchildren here today. Hello. Let's say that I say to each of my grandchildren, I have seven of them now, that I am going to put $100,000 in a safety deposit box in their name. Now, there's not a very much likelihood that that's going to happen. You might get one with $10 in it. <laughs> Be more likely than 100000 <laughs> But let's just say that I was able to do that and uh, I was, uh, that, I'm, that I'm going to do that. I'm going to put $100,000 in a safety deposit box in their name. And when they turn 25, it's theirs, okay? It's there. It's in the box and the box has their name on it, and so that's a certainty for them that they look forward to when they're 25, that's theirs, okay? That's the idea of hope in Scripture. It's a not just a wish. They don't have to, oh, I wish granddaddy would do something. No, it's already there for them. And that's the idea of hope in Scripture. We're not wishing and just, boy, I hope it's going to be okay. I hope God, you know, it's certainty in the future. The reason it's hope is it's not in the present. We don't experience. It's in the future, but it's still certainty in the future. And that's our hope. So what is the content of the hope of the gospel? This certainty in the future. It is all of the promises that God has made to us about the future. Perfect fellowship with God, glorified and resurrected bodies, a new heavens and a new earth, the fullness of life in eternity as God has designed it. And all pain and sorrow and sickness and death and broken relationships are no more. They're all in the past. All is made new. This is the certainty of the future. And when Paul says it's laid up in heaven for you, the idea is that these promises are secure as if they are in a safety deposit box with our name on it in heaven. The message of the gospel is a message of certainty about the future. It is our hope for which we long. Thirdly, the gospel, Paul also refers to the gospel as the word of truth, the gospel. 
And here we talk about the certainty of the gospel. Now, the hope of the gospel is certainty about the future, but here Paul's looking at the message as a whole. The whole message about Jesus Christ, God's Son, coming to earth, dying, rising, ascending, coming again. And the point here is that all that the gospel says, all that the gospel teaches is truth. And in the context for Paul, it is the false teaching in the church. He's comparing the gospel with the false teaching and says the gospel is the word of truth. And remember, now, excuse me, this is the point that Paul, as the apostle, is making. And remember from verse 1 last week, as an apostle, he is the one who has the authority to speak for Christ. The one who has seen the risen Christ and was commissioned by the risen Christ. And he says, the gospel is truth. The gospel does not allow for just any message, no matter how quote-unquote Christian it might seem, if it is in conflict with the teaching of the apostle. And in our world of religious pluralism, it is the gospel alone that remains as truth. It is the standard by which any system or teaching or spirituality, whatever you might call it, it is the standard by which any of these things must be measured. The gospel is truth. And then the fourth insight into the gospel from this passage is is that Paul says they have come to know the grace of God in truth. And this really is the message of the gospel. It's a message of grace the grace of God. Again, we must be clear. The message, the gospel, is a message of grace. And while while few, if any, would disagree with that, there are many teachings today that obscure the grace of God. Really, the freeness of of God's grace. It's like sometimes as one author wrote, grace is often an eclipse. You see, there's often a subtle and seemingly, seemingly logical and reasonable message that adds to the grace of God. And so while grace means the gospel comes to us totally as God's favor and there's nothing that we can do, must do to make ourselves worthy to receive it or enable us to receive it. There's nothing. It's grace. It's totally God's favor, undeserved favor. There are many, though, that would add conditions to receiving God's grace. It's like, it's free, but it can't be that free. (laughs) 
They add things like surrender, commitment. You have to believe and commit. You have to promise. You have to make a promise to God that, you know, Lord, I I promise that I'm going to do differently. To change our life. And the worst thing is that if we really don't follow through on on these promises, then it is said, well, we've never received God's grace to begin with. And so what's grace conditioned on? It's grace condi- it ends up being conditioned on our performance, our ability, our, prom- our, our ability to follow through on our promises and whatever they may be. And so it's ultimately dependent on, on us, on our performance. But the gospel is not conditioned in any way on our worthiness or even our promise of worthiness. Either it is grace or it's not. And the words in truth here, the grace of God in truth, emphasize that the gospel truly is grace. Grace alone. We don't add to it. We simply receive it. Paul is not only thanking God for their reception of the gospel, but he's thanking God also for the transforming work of the gospel in their lives. And let's look now and see what he says about this. Paul gives thanks when he hears of their faith, but also when he hears of the love which you have for all the saints. He's thankful for this because the love that they have for all the saints. This is the heart of transformation. Love for one another is the heart of biblical transformation. The transformation of our lives, but even more than that, the transformation of our hearts. Uh, Love is the pinnacle virtue. The very thing that Jesus said would mark us as his follower and give testimony that he really is the Son of God. Why is love so important? Because it is the evidence of true and genuine transformation. The gospel can take us as selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, uncaring people and transform us into selfless, sacrificing, giving, and caring people. That's what the gospel can do. And when Paul says, speaks of the love for all the saints, he is aware that in our sinful nature, we most often gravitate toward people like us. We like to be around people just like us. But the gospel changes our hearts and causes us to love all people. The unlovable. Which he will later mention when we get to chapter 3. He describes it as Greeks and Jews. (laughs) Barbarian and Scythian. Slave and free. 
regardless of these barriers that we erect in our sinful humanity, the gospel breaks down those barriers, transcends those barriers, causes us to love one another. This is why Paul gives thanks. Why he's so excited when he hears that they love one another. The gospel's working in their lives. Second thing Paul says about the transforming work of the gospel is that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This, this talks about the scope of this transformation. You see, the gospel is not a one-and-done event. It is not a one-time transaction. The reception of the gospel is just the beginning. Yes, we are saved by faith alone in Christ, saved then forever. But the work of the gospel is not done. The work of the gospel is to continue in our lives, that transforming work. And the work of Christ entails not only restoring our relationship to God, but also the provisions whereby God changes us into to be the kind of people that he desires us to be. So the work of the gospel in us should constantly be bearing fruit. Now, fruit is always that which is produced by the nature of the entity bearing it. Okay? We talk about the fruit of a tree. Okay? An apple tree bears the fruit of apples. We talk about the fruit of the womb. The person comes forth from the mother. We talk about the fruit of the lips, the words that proceed. So the fruit of the gospel, <clears throat> the fruit of the gospel is that character and life that is produced as a result of our new nature in Christ. That's the fruit, the gospel. Jesus talks about bearing much fruit. John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me shall bear much fruit. He talks about bearing fruit as we abide in him. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit as that which the Holy Spirit produces and manifests in us. And when Paul says this fruit is increasing, he is indicating that it should always be ongoing in our lives. The transforming work of the gospel should always continue to bear fruit. We, never, we should never reach a place, no matter how long we've known the Lord, no matter how old we are, we should never reach a place where we think we've arrived and we don't see the need for the gospel to continue its transforming work in us. And finally, Paul refers to your love in the Spirit, and this talks about the power of this transformation. We've already seen the importance of loving one another and here we see the power for that love. We love in the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit of God in us gives us the power and strength to overcome our natural sinful desires 
and inclinations. It, the Spirit of God empowers us to live as the people of God. The Spirit of God can make a difference in us. Most of us are probably familiar with this verse of Paul from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We love that. Oh, God can do great things. Yeah, exceedingly abundantly beyond what, he can be, what, he, what we can even think. But how does God do that amazing work? The verse continues. According to the power that works within us. He does those amazing things through and by the power of God in us. The Spirit of God in us. This is the power of the gospel for transformation. So, we are a people of the gospel. It's who we are. It's our nature. It's identity. For us, it just all be about the gospel. We receive the gospel by faith with the conviction that this is what I believe. Through the gospel, we have a certain hope for the future. It's not just about this life, but through the gospel, we have the certainty of eternity with Christ. The gospel is the truth. It is the standard by which all competing philosophies and religions are to be measured. The gospel is a message of grace. It's all of grace. We simply receive what God has done and allow what he has done to then do his work in us, transforming us and changing us. The gospel doesn't just save us, but it transforms us. It transforms us from selfish and self-absorbed people to loving and caring people. The gospel bears fruit in our lives as it continues the work of God to change us in all areas. And this work is never ending. And the gospel has the power of God to change us through the Spirit of God. Two challenges from our passage today. Number one, we've looked at the gospel today. We've looked at, it, we've looked at what it is, what the content is of the gospel is that which must be believed. And we look at, looked at what it really means to believe it, what faith really is. So if you're unsure, if you've ever really understood the gospel before, or if you've ever really sincerely believed in Jesus as your Savior, to receive the gospel, to say, yes, this is what I believe. If you're unsure, if you've ever done that, we invite you to place your faith in Christ today, to receive the gospel, the message of the gospel, what God has done for us to provide the forgiveness of sins and hope of eternity. Receive it by faith, saying, yes, I believe this message. But secondly, we've also been, we've also seen the, the transforming power of the gospel. 
this creates a little bit of dissonance here. Because sometimes we don't see that power at work in our lives. We just don't seem to change. Everything just, you know, goes on. Sometimes we don't see it in the lives of others as we might like. So we have to ask, is that power really real? I mean, is there a real power here that can make a difference? Yes, the power is real. But God doesn't force his power on anyone. We must seek and avail ourselves of that transforming power. We must hunger for it. We must thirst for it. We must cry out for it. And maybe if you know the transforming power of the gospel has not been at work in your life as it should. If you were to take an honest look at yourself, you would see maybe that you've grown cold. You've grown distant from the Lord. Maybe you've grown indifferent about the things of the Lord. It would not be hard to understand in the midst of this pandemic in which we're living when people are so separated from one another and we don't have the opportunity to come together as we normally would for that encouragement. And many people are, are still away. And it could be that some are using this pandemic. It's become now an excuse and not a reason. Maybe there are some who are tolerating sin in their life. The challenge for you today, would you resolve before the Lord today to renew his transforming work in your life? To seek it. To pursue it. To cry out for it so that God might begin or God might renew that work of transformation in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word once again. We thank you today, Lord, for the gospel, the saving power of the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would be present to open our minds to hear and understand, but open our hearts to receive this as the truth for what it is. It is truth, Lord. I pray that the Spirit of God might work to break down any objections to any who might be unsure 
about whether they have truly received the gospel message, believed in Christ with certainty. May you be pleased, Lord, to bring them to that faith today. And for any, Lord, for whom, in whom your work, that transforming work, is now diminished, I pray that you would renew that work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.